At a time when our conversations are as polarized as they've ever been, sound ideas and reasonable perspectives get lost in the shuffle. Well, we can't afford to lose our voice. I'm Chicago Urban League President and CEO Sherry Runner. And if you aren't at the table, you're on the menu. Welcome to our conversations on culture, race, and equity. It's time you had a seat at the table. Pull up a chair. Your host, Domiti Pongo. I'm Domiti Pongo, and this week we're talking about wage gaps based on race and gender. Our guests are an employment discrimination lawyer and an aviation executive and STEM education expert. Attorney Paul Strauss goes to bat for clients who believe they've been paid less than their counterparts solely based on what they look like. Following our interview with him, we hear from Tamara Holmes, a black female aviation executive whose company, Aerostar, creates a pipeline for children of color interested in jobs in STEM fields. But first, Attorney Paul Strauss. This is Culture, Race, and Equity, a Chicago Urban League podcast. And right now, taking the seat at the table is attorney Paul Strauss. He's a civil rights attorney who focuses on employment discrimination cases. A graduate of Yale Law School. Uh, he was also a prior president of the Chicago Council of Lawyers and a finalist for the Trial Lawyer of the Year Award from the American Trial Lawyers Association Foundation. None other than Paul Strauss. Thank you for taking a seat at the table. Yeah, I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you. No problem. Tell us a little bit more about your work. Um, Well, I've been in practice for 35 years. I concentrate on employment discrimination, class actions, and employment discrimination cases, and other types of civil rights cases. So I do race, sex, age, disability discrimination cases, mainly against private employers, but also sometimes against the government. Um, These are cases in which people have been denied employment, Uh, or discharged uh, or um, denied promotions or uh, have discrepancies in pay, all because of discriminatory reasons. At least that's what we need to prove in these cases. They're difficult to prove, um, but they are um, uh, cases that uh, are definitely worth bringing and uh, important cases for us to do. It's kind of difficult to prove these things in the court of public opinion, too. (laughs) Yeah, the court of public opinion is behind. Um, There's been um, some very significant studies showing that uh, there is race discrimination on a significant level, um, but they haven't penetrated the public uh, sentiment as much as they should. There is a tremendous white... Uh, resistance to admitting to race discrimination. Um, And uh, the shocking statistic is that more white people, a majority of white people believe that white people are discriminated against more than people of color, which is crazy, um, but shows you what um, uh, the public sentiment is. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because we're talking about uh, racial wage discrimination right now. We can touch on gender wage discrimination as well. Uh, But I was reading an article not too long ago where uh, I can't remember what the numbers were, but white Americans vastly felt that racial discrimination studies and disparities that people talk about were overstated. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you saw that study or if you just anecdotally already know that white people tend to not believe that. Well, I know uh, I've seen the study. You know, um, the, uh, what should be noticed is that there have been a couple of studies where um, resumes were sent out to employers with identifi- identifiable black names and identifiable white names um, where all the information was otherwise the same. And um, 
black applicants got called back for interviews uh, at significantly lower rates than white applicants to the point at which um, it showed that a black applicant without a criminal record was uh, likely to be called back at the same rate as a white applicant with a criminal record. Mm. Um, so uh, there's plenty of discrimination out there and um, good evidence of it. Um, there's also a very recent study that was described in the New York Times where black applicant, black uh, people or people with black identifiable black names and people with identifiable white names contacted local government officials for information as simple as what their office hours were. And um, black people or the people with black names got responses at significantly lower, statistically significant lower rates than the people with white names. Um, so uh, this kind of discrimination exists both among private employers and government employees. Mm. What's the case that stands out to you? Um, you know, a case that I enjoyed doing and that I thought was significant was a case involving black meat cutters who were employed by the A&P grocery store chain. Uh, A&P started closing stores in the Chicago area and laying off meat cutters. And they um, gerrymandered their seniority districts so that the black meat cutters were concentrated in a couple of districts um, and you couldn't exercise your seniority outside of your district. Um, the districts were gerrymandered so that the black employees were all in black area stores in a black area district and they got laid off disproportionately even though at the time A&P was hiring new uh, meat cutters who were white in white area stores. So they got uh, laid off even though they were more senior to the white meat cutters that were being hired. And we tried that case and won it and won over a million dollars in damages for the black meat cutters. And that, uh, I, I thought that was significant just in, um, in how um, uh, a company could manipulate its rules to um, harm black employees. And this was in the 80s? Yeah, that was in the 80s. So what changes have you seen over the decades in terms of employment discrimination? Have you seen things get, get better? Have people been able to call you less? <laughs> I, I have seen things get better. I would say that the big employers are much more careful now to not get themselves in a situation where they can be sued for racial discrimination or sex discrimination. And that what we see now is many more cases by small employee, employers who are not sophisticated and who um, sometimes are run by family members uh, or run uh, just without a lot of uh, support from human resources or legal. And they um, uh, do make uh, discriminatory, do engage in discriminatory actions. But I, I have seen changes by the major employers. Absolutely. So how do you account for this? So is it, do you legislate, can you legislate this away? Well, it's difficult. Um, you know, there is, uh, employment discrimination is prohibited by Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and by the Illinois Human Rights Act and uh, the Chicago Discrimination Ordinance. But um, 
The way the cases are now with the burdens of proof and what you have to do, it's difficult to prove discrimination. Um, I think that a major piece of legislation that should get passed would require employers to publicly report on a public website the numbers of people they hire for particular jobs broken down by race and sex and publicly report the number of people they promote to jobs for particular jobs broken down by race and sex. And I think if you did that, employers would be embarrassed in the first place by their record and would make an effort to uh, do better and that it would uh, show where there were significant racial disparities and allow um, those companies to be subject to uh, lawsuits where it's appropriate. A lot of the problem you have right now is you just don't have knowledge of which companies are doing the wrong thing. And it, that, that um, public disclosure of information would go a long way toward approving things. And I think that is one piece of legislation that could make a big difference. You talked about the burden of proof. What makes it so hard to prove an employment dis uh, discrimination case? Well, um, a typical, let's say you take a typical discharge case. That a black employee says, I was discharged for dis because of discrimination, and um, the reasons given by the employer were um, false. But uh, the employer can typically come up in any case with some criticism of um, the employee and reasons why they were discharged. And then it's the employee's burden to have to prove that those reasons were false and that the real reason was discrimination. And that's just difficult to do. Um, you have to get into the head of the decision maker and prove what their intent was. And you have to disprove that the, um, that the reasons given by the employer were uh, accurate. And uh, like I said, an employer can always come up with reasons, some attendance or some uh, matter of uh, supposed poor production or um, you put it this way in any job you can see you could be subject to criticism for your performance and uh, disproving that that's the reason is just difficult to do unless you have direct evidence of some racial slur or um, some you know really unusual pattern um, that you don't normally see it's just very difficult Getting back to the issue of the wage gap, I can imagine it's difficult to, um, and I think this is why you see the reluctance on the part of whites to admit that racial disparities still exist, is because it's kind of hard to imagine a hiring manager saying, you know what, that's an African-American guy, love his qualifications, but I'm going to pay him 75, 25% uh, less than I pay this person. How does it really play out in practice where, where CEOs tend to pay black employees or women far less than they play white? white male counterparts. How, how are they able to justify that? Well, I don't think it happens at the CEO level. I think it happens much more at the managerial, mid-level management level. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they do justify it. I think they just do it. Um, I have a case that I've just started where a black employee was hired and was paid three quarters of the wage of the person he replaced and the people who were in comparable jobs. And I don't know that there is an explanation for that so far. Um, the employer has responded by saying, well, let's engage in settlement talks. So uh, it's an indication <laughs> that uh, 
that they may not have an explanation for it either. But I think it's just done. And then uh, employers rely on the fact that employees don't often know what the other people are being paid. And, um, and then if they do see a difference, it's always explained away by saying, oh, this other person had more experience or longer time at the company or a better education or there's some factor that they latch on to to try to give an explanation. If employers are already coming up with ways to just kind of uh, explain away this, or I, I, I guess managers at the managerial level, they're coming to ways to explain this away, and you know, legislating it is only a piece of the solution, what's the other piece of the solution? Is it possible to change the way people think? Well, changing the way people think is difficult. Um, and uh, I think we are making progress, although obviously there's been a huge backlash with the um, election of Trump uh, and the uh, type of uh, rhetoric he's engaged in has shown that there's been a big backlash. Um, but there has been tremendous progress in the country over the last 50 years um, in um, changes in people's attitudes with respect to race. But uh, it goes very deep, and it's not always conscious. Like I said, most people, most white people will tell you that they are not biased against black people, but if you do tests, um, they will show that implicitly, at least, most white people are, in fact, do in fact view black black people less favorably than white people. And I don't know how you change that attitude. Um, the racial wage gap is due to all sorts of very, very, very deeply ingrained differences in educational opportunities and incarceration rates and in the wealth gap between black families and white families. And it would require really a huge effort by government and private businesses to make that change. So it's not, it's not a matter that's going to be easy to deal with. And what's one thing that we can do today uh, to address this issue of this racial wage gap? Uh, does it mean getting the word out? Does it mean more diversity training at companies? What, what does it mean? What, what, what can we do aside from uh, championing the legislation you talked about earlier? Well, um, that's an interesting question. I think uh, one thing that would help would be to have better funding of the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission so that they can actually investigate cases and um, uh, take in complaints and handle them. They are overburdened now and underfunded. Um, and so people who filed EEOC charges rarely get any significant action from the EEOC. So mm -hmm. that would be one significant thing we could do. The legislation I mentioned I think is important to give out the information about what companies are actually doing. Um, I'm not sure that um, bias training um, is really going to make a difference. Um, there's some evidence that if you do uh, implicit bias training or uh, training on racial sensitivity, you actually may uh, um, invoke white resentment and get more discrimination instead really? of less. Yeah, there's some evidence of that. Um, so uh, I think changing attitudes, um, uh, a lot of it has to do with media and media portrayal of African-American um, people and um, some steady progress we've made in... Um, in uh, uh, how African Americans are viewed. Look, um, 
if you just look at uh, interracial marriage, interracial marriage has increased significantly. I'm married to an African-American woman, and when we were married, it was a relatively rare occurrence, but it's um, interracial marriage rates have increased significantly, and people's approval of interracial marriage has increased significantly. So I think there is progress being made, but it's slow, um, and it's difficult to know how to increase it, how to, how to move it faster. Yeah, I, th- I think you make a good point. I think as America becomes browner and as your kids, you know, you start to see these issues affect the people you love, your kids, your wife, your family, your extended family, uh, become something that, that you start to pay attention to. We've seen it with the opioid ec- epidemic. Uh, just as when the crack epidemic was around, um, legislators couldn't, couldn't identify with it. But you start seeing rich white kids deal with this opioid issue, and we start to see the government really, really try to fight that. Yeah, it's a huge... It's a huge difference between how the government responded to um, drug problems when they seem to be focused on black Americans and how they've responded once uh, uh, drug problems hit white America. The difference is uh, so stark and so significant. So as our, as our families become more metropolitan, uh, we may see these, these differences uh, in responses kind of into other sectors. At least we can hope so. Yeah, we can hope so. <laughs> Culture, Race, and Equity, Chicago Urban League podcast. That is attorney Paul Strauss, civil rights attorney, focuses on employment discrimination cases. We're talking about the racial wage gap. Thank you for taking a seat at the table. I appreciate it. I appreciate having the time. Thank you very much for having me. We'll now hear from Tamara Holmes, the founder of Aerostar. It's a firm that helps young people find their way into STEM fields. Her work has been covered in Forbes magazine. She's given TED Talks and has been inducted into the Illinois Aviation Association Hall of Fame. Holmes gives her personal experiences with discrimination. She's working with the next generation to make sure they have a different experience in the workplace. Well, what it is that we do is we actually create opportunities for young people with regard to careers in aviation and aerospace. So we go beyond exposure. Most youth aviation programs only expose kids to aviation, maybe at an orientation flight on a Saturday where they take kids up and let them, you know, get an airplane ride or a pilot comes in to school on a career day and talks to kids about what they do for a living. Aerostar goes way beyond that. We're one of the only organizations, if not the only organization in a nation that actually runs structured program year-round for youth age kindergarten through 12th grade. There are some aviation high school programs and more are coming on board, but now with our new partnership with the Boeing Company, we actually provide programs from as young as kindergarten uh, all the way up through 12th grade. So it's a very different model from what we've seen in the past with STEM, like robotics or first Lego exposure and competition. Mm. We don't do exposure. We don't compete. We literally train up the next generation of aviation professionals, just as you would when you see a gifted child in sports or ballet or football. When they get the ball in their hand or they or they are practicing in front of the mirror or they in front of that piano, you know that there's a talent there. And you continue to send that kid to the best teachers. They do recitals. Um, they get other trainers. They get involved in more programs. And over time, when they join a team, 
when they get older, they get better coaches. Those coaches know the next level coaches that mm-hmm. send them to high school, that put them on AAU teams, that put them on traveling teams, that put them at a higher level of that competitive sport. Um, but that's actually a pipeline. And you don't find that for academics, and you definitely don't find it for STEM careers. And when I first started out, people would ask me, well, how do you teach a kid about aviation? I'm like, you don't have to teach a kid about aviation. Dora has a plane. Snoopy has a plane. Hello Kitty has a plane. Barbie has been an astronaut, a flight attendant, and a pilot. And uh, everything that they see in their programming is about flight. Right. And almost every, the little Einsteins were going on a trip in their little rocket ship. I mean, these kids see it. <laughs> mm, yeah. Every time I go into my kids' classroom or youth classroom, you see the airplane on the toy shelf in the toy bin. You see it right along with the firemen, and you see it with right along with the doctor. But what students of color don't see uh, are people who look like me doing those kind of jobs. So um, why I do what, what I do is because... When I got introduced to aviation at 16 years old through a Young Eagles flight with the Chicago area Tuskegee Airmen out of Maxfield, um, the pilot took me up and he let me fly the airplane. And I was flying over to Lake Michigan looking at the city of Chicago uh, skyline. And I said I could do this for the rest of my life. It was the most incredible thing that I had ever done. And to know that a, a young black girl from poor Maywood, growing up in a three-bedroom apartment with 13 people, uh, living in poverty, roaches, no heat, no water, uh, no electricity or electricity running from the apartment downstairs. Um, I know what it's like to grow up in poverty, but I also have been gifted uh, and academically inclined. But I was a bad kid. I was angry. I was always fighting. I was always getting into trouble. I was always looking for the action, for the activity, uh, for the party, for the group, you know, for the for the crew. And uh, that that was leading me down the wrong path because I was a thrill seeker. And so when I when I tasted aviation and I got that high, you know, it really changed the game as far as what I could see it being able to do for young people who was on the pathway like me. So let's talk about jobs. So perhaps every child doesn't decide to become a pilot or every child doesn't want to become a pilot, doesn't want to fly the plane. But there are other industries within the aviation industry, uh, other other disciplines that they can get into. Uh, talk about what that looks like and what the wages are in some of those other fields that are somewhat related to the aviation. Industry. Well, you, you, you bring up an excellent point, and most aviation programs do focus on the pilot because the pilot is, that's the super sexy, that's the cool, that's the everybody want to be, you know, top gun. Right. But for every one pilot job, there's 99 other jobs to get that pilot up off the ground in one city and back on the ground mm. in another city. And so the infrastructure around aviation jobs um, runs the gamut of not just STEM fields, but art, the creative arts. Uh, O'Hare Airport has a curator. O'Hare, O'Hare has lawyers. They have a spokesperson. The city of Chicago has a spokesperson that whose uh, background is journalism. Um, is is airport managers, the people that actually run the airports and manage the airports, is airport operations, the people that, that actually out on the airfield um, that are flagging planes in and parking planes and uh, it's the people that manage the finances and the revenues for all of the airlines. It's the people that manage the safety aspect of airports who decide, okay, now everybody needs to take their shoes off. Everybody needs to take their belts off. You know, everybody needs to lay on the conveyor belt, you know, whatever they decide <laughs> to do next. Um, but the the entire premise around 
uh, aviation careers is that they touch almost every other industry. I can't think of an industry that doesn't touch aviation from medicine, law, sports. When I tell my students, like, how do every day, how does aviation play out in your everyday life? And he's like, well, you know, I don't know. I don't, I've never been on a trip. And I'm like, Look at go home and look at all of the products that you use. How many of it? How many of those products were made in Chicago? O'Hara O'Hara is doing five hundred billion dollars in air cargo for our region every year. So these are jobs and industries that we don't think about because they're not shown to us and exposed to us at an early age, mm. um, or or at a formidable age where we're able to choose. You know, I have a gift and talent in art or creativity, graphic design, visualization. Um, why couldn't you design airplanes? Hmm. Why couldn't you design the systems that go into next generation aircraft that that actually show you, you know, the graphs and the maps of where airplanes are in real time? Why couldn't you take those artistic talents and create art that uh, aviation art or why couldn't you learn to fly a drone and do aerial photography and get coverage of, you know, the 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 Super Bowl? Why can't you do those things as a profession? And they don't have an answer because they haven't thought about it because they have they have no knowledge that those careers even exist. And so it's it's the opening up and the unveiling of where their passion meets the opportunities within the aviation industry. And it takes people from the industry to come back and show these kids and tell these kids, you know, I landed a job as a financial planner for for an aviation firm. Right. Like what? I thought I would have had to work at a bank if I did finances. So even at the corporate level, once you get there, aside from the skills gap that we see that leads to like this this uh, this wage discrepancy, then you have gender based wage discrimination, race based wage discrimination. Talk a bit about what your experiences were in that in that in that space. Well, it's it's a very interesting paradigm because we know that girls outperform boys academically, especially in math and science, all the way up until junior year in high school. We also know that the lack of representation at the collegiate level when it comes to professors and uh, instructors in those hard sciences leave women who study STEM fields without an advocate within the academic arena. Um, not only that, after you leave academia uh, with your post-secondary studies and go on to corporate, you don't have the representation of females in leadership and in management. Most of the females are still working clerical positions or entry level, and if they are in management, they're mid-management. Um, definitely not at the C-suite level. And when you're talking about STEM numbers, those are even worse uh, So for women in STEM. So me coming on board uh, at a corporation that was um, a, global, a global firm that actually worked on, planned, and designed airports all over the world. Um, I, I came in as an intern, and my level of confidence was just so high that there was really nothing that they could tell me that would that would deter me from, from moving up quickly within the firm. Uh, I had a lot, of, a lot of hate and a lot of jealousy from my white female counterparts, which I didn't expect. It was just that little petty competition. You know, they would go out for lunch and not invite me, you know, and I'm thinking, we ladies, we already in a, in a male-dominate dominate field, and we couldn't even come together. Um, so then after, 
it was a couple of blessings that happened to me, which afforded me opportunities, which that I may not have otherwise had. And that was September 11th. Mm. Uh, the day after September 11th happened, uh, within weeks, the company laid off 11% of the professional staff. They laid off all of the administrative staff. Uh, within a year, I went from working on projects um, that were menial and um, kind of at a subordinate level to working on high level projects that uh, that I otherwise would not have had the opportunity to work on if people weren't just jumping ship. I mean, we went from an office of almost 100 people downtown to 12 individuals working out by O'Hare Airport mm. from 2001 to 2004. Wow. And for seven years, I was the only African-American working for the company globally. 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 So wow. the company wasn't that big. We had about 115 employees worldwide. But still, you, you, you are, you are, you are, you're an international firm. You got one black person working mm-hmm. for you out of 120 people. Mm-hmm. And so it was lonely, um, but I knew my stuff. And that's one of the things that I tell my students all the time. Can nobody question your intelligence? You know, it doesn't matter what you look like when you and I was young and I know I'm considered attractive. So all of these things played against me because I walk in the room, I look like a baby. And you assume that I may have slept my way to the top because I get all of these favors because people want to, you know, make advances. It was real. It, I had men like try to kiss me on a regular basis on my cheek instead of giving me handshakes. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. this is the kind of world that men don't really see. You know, when you when you call somebody hun or you know, if you were working with a guy, you would never always expect, you know, to kiss them on the cheek or give them, you know, a strong man hug every time you right. left their presence. Right. But women get treated like this on a regular basis to where you would shake hands at the end of the night, you know, after being at a corporate event and you would get kissed on the cheek. And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> What is that? You like, guys can't see it, but Tamara just <laughs> wiped her face. I think she just relived like, it. Like, what is that? I did relive it. I felt that. Yeah. And so, you know, just having women be prepared for the real world um, to to advocate for the race, to go in and say, you know what? I, I saw a couple of other people get promoted, and I'm just wondering when, was my t- when is my turn? I'd like to talk about my last performance review and what can a company do to help me improve. I would find workshops that I could go to and take them to my boss and ask him, could he send me and would the company pay for it? See, these are things that people did not do and my white counterparts didn't have to do because if a conference came up, they were already, they were on the list to go. But me, little Tam, you know, working our way up the corporate ladder, I was 25 years old uh, when I got my first promotion. By the time I was promoted the second time, I was 28 years old, had the corner office with The View. My first contract when I started Aerostars as an independent consultant was $97,000. I was 28 years old, 29 years old. And uh, I had gotten as far as I believed that they was going to let me go in the company without me waiting in line for 10 years for management position. And uh, that's when I decided to go contract and start Aerostar because I was doing the minority and woman-owned business compliance reporting for the company. And I realized that they were having a hard time meeting their contract compliance goals on a $10 million contract. Mm -hmm. And so within the city of Chicago at that time, each contract had minority and woman-owned participation goals. The minority goal was 16.9%, and the woman-owned business goal was 4.5%. So I'm thinking to myself... This is 21%. I think that's 21. If y'all listening, please don't do the math because I'm not good at math. We're looking at 21% of $10 million 
over a 10-year period that has to go to minority-owned businesses, and we were not giving that money away in a meaningful, we were not contracting that with meaningful contract work. We was doing it through like office supplies, company, a travel agency, but no real aviation project work. So one day I was looking in the mirror and I was like, I'm a minority, I'm a woman, I need a business enterprise. And that's how Aerostar was started. I actually started the firm as a for-profit, um, and after working working the company for a year, my husband and I had our second child, and I was commuting an hour and a half each way almost to O'Hare and back from the south suburbs. So uh, that's when I decided that I was going to work temporary um, part-time, and then I just stopped going altogether. Like, they just packed up my stuff. But these are conversations that women have to have that men don't have to have like when I get pregnant when I have my kid when I have to nurse when I have to go when my baby been throwing up all night or got a fever I got to call off for a whole week because my kid got sick and can't go to school I mean the United States of America is one of the only countries that doesn't allow a year for maternity leave mm-hmm. It's only two developed nations that don't allow a year for maternity leave, and the United States of America is one of them. So when we look at the culture of corporate America, how can we really compete as women? Corporate sees women as a liability because there's so many, what if she gets pregnant? You know, what if she puts her family, you know, before this or that? What if she loses her temper at a meeting and gets emotional? How do we respond to that? You know, and so it's a whole lot of misconceptions about who we are and what we bring to the table. And I think a lot of what's always put on front street um, that that um, people don't value is our emotional intelligence because we have a gut feeling about deals. We have stuff that we can't explain that we can see and have forethought uh, about out, about down the road. Men usually operate in isolation when it comes to project ba- projects. So they'll work on one thing, put that away, then start something else, work on that. But women multitask like you wouldn't believe. That's a known fact that women can handle more things mm-hmm. mentally at one time. So when we're talking about careers that that have you managing multiple projects and working on multiple things and then you have to go home and still cook and do laundry and and then you know you have to you know uh, work on art projects and go to parent teacher conference and then you still got to go be boss and ceo i mean it's the dynamics of that men just don't have to do so i think a lot of the part a lot of women of the the inequity in pay has to do with women just not wanting to fight for more pay because more pay means more work and they can't work more. Mm, I get it. Even though with the same amount, even though they're getting paid less for the same work that a man is doing, Mm -hmm. if they go and ask for more pay, they're going to be required to do more work. And that's not the case for the same compensation that men work for. For the exact same thing. So uh, we try to end every podcast with this question, most of them at least, with so what is something that people can do today to affect change in the area? You already talked about it. We're talking about a pi- creating a pipeline does some of that work, right? Yeah. But the piece that we don't address with the pipeline is what you just talked about, uh, cultural competencies within companies and discrimination. That's something that you can't really litigate. It's something that's, that's, that's nebulous. Or maybe you can. So how do we affect it? How do we, how do so we fix it? So it's this? two things. Number one, we've always said that as a people, we need to work 10 times harder to get exactly what the next man has. So that still holds true for me. I mean, if you if you want to come to the game and, and really be a game changer and a, and, a, and a heavy hitter, you're going to have to know your stuff. 
Second of all, I believe entrepreneurship really is the only way to, to wealth, whether you black or otherwise. Multiple streams of income is proven that the average millionaire has seven streams of income. I got two right now. I'm, I'm short. <laughs> so we're looking at having to have con- real conversations with young people about money management, about uh, stewardship, about entrepreneurship and how to start a business. Because I just left uh, an award ceremony at the at the Environmental Protection Agency where the feds and the state of Illinois is saying we have 35 percent minority and woman owned business contract goals on hundreds of millions of dollars of contracts to business owners. But minorities go out and start businesses. They don't do it. They don't they don't file their taxes. They don't file for incorporation. They're gonna do everything under their social security number. Everything go ringing right to their cell phone, their business cards they printed at home. It's like that's mediocrity. That's taking the job at that's taking the three thirty thousand dollar a job thirty thirty dollar an hour job now instead of putting in the work for that six figures in seven years and six years which is going to allow you the flexibility and the creativity to step out on your own and start your own company. But, but yeah, knowing your stuff and going hard for it from day one and making those hard sacrifices from the beginning and not, not going out and getting these credit cards and setting up, you know, this lifestyle that you're going to need to finance and afford. And, and yeah, the second thing is entrepreneurship. You're going to have to learn how to step outside of the matrix and see it for what it really is and learn how to play the game. Tamra Holmes is an aviation expert and the founder of Aerostar. Thank you for taking a seat at the table. Thank you for checking out a segment from our 10-part series, Culture, Race, and Equity, A Seat at the Table. We invite you to view our show notes at culpodcast.com. And please don't forget to rate us and leave your comments on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To stay in touch and find out how you can support the League, visit our website at thechicagourbanleague.org. I'm President and CEO Sherry Runner. See you next Monday.